the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a pleasant good day to you. We are here on a Thursday. Amazing to think that tomorrow is Friday. Finally, yes, already. Wow, been a busy week and no doubt more excitement to come, even as we continue to watch the Kavanaugh chaos taking place back in Washington, D.C. No doubt a vote by tomorrow, and we'll see what the reaction is. Certainly protesters all over Capitol Hill today in the um, Rayburn Senate office building. And, um, you know, uh, some of this, I think, to be anticipated, maybe more. Be fascinating to see what the ultimate reaction is and just how well-behaved Americans can be. We'll find out. All right, on today's program, though, we're going to talk about some, some other issues of importance. Coming up later on in our first hour, we're going to be joined by speaker, best-selling author, and Christian recording artist Denise Pass. Denise goes public with a very painful private story inside the pages of a new book called Shame Off You, Hiding from Shame to Healing. And uh, it, is a, it is a book that certainly at certain passages will make you cringe, and yet at the end it is a very encouraging book, and one where if you yourself struggle with feelings of embarrassment or shame over circumstances in your own life, and you feel as if you have been held hostage by those feelings, we're going to talk about how to get victory coming up later on when Denise Pass joins us. We, um, if over the course of almost 30 years on this radio program, frequently tackled the issue of the connection between changes in societal behavior and the direct influence of the media. And you've got to wonder, particularly as we've been sort of banging the drum on this topic for 30 years now, the cumulative impact of violence, sexualization, and everything from advertising to entertainment. Certainly, kids spend hours and hours and hours in front of the TV set or the flat screen connected to Xbox or their PlayStation 4 playing violent video games. And then we wonder why kids act out violently. We, we, we have the notion that somehow we can disconnect or isolate or inoculate our children from the impact of violence in the media, over-sexualization in the media, and that somehow it's not going to not going to in any way touch their behavior. Well, a new study out that once again demonstrates, and I hate to say it, but we've been right all these years. Joining me is Melissa Henson. Melissa is an expert on entertainment industry. She knows a lot of the trends going on today, particularly the look at the issue of entertainment and how it affects children. 
and our culture at large. And Melissa, great to have you on the program. I, I Again, for me, this, this is no surprise. If anything, I continue to wonder why it is, as we bemoan violence, we bemoan the over-sexualization of our children, we look at the, the outcome of what's happening with the Me Too movement today, and we, we somehow generally seem to, at least at a national level, fail to connect the dots. Why is that? It's stunning, isn't it? Um, and I, unfortunately, I don't have any quick or easy answers as to why we have failed to connect the dots, but clearly we have. I mean, when you consider the fact that, um, you know, many executives in Hollywood are um, being fired or um, being sued because of lewd or indecent or inappropriate things that they said to female colleagues, and yet um, every night on television, on, on the primetime broadcast network. Uh, we have adult actors saying lewd and indecent and inappropriate things, not only to our children, but to the child actors that are on the shows that they're appearing on. And nobody sees anything wrong with that. Nobody sees that as a you know, sort of a cognitive dissonance, which it clearly is. Um, if it's wrong to say those things to an adult woman in a professional environment, clearly it's wrong to say it to a child actor in a professional environment. And clearly it's wrong to expose America's children to that kind of content. And let's be clear about something here so that listeners do not misconstrue anything either of us are saying. The research done, the new study by the Parents Television Council, you're not talking about children that are being exposed to um, sexualization on television. This gets down to the notion of this sexualization taking place in front of children that are often depicted inside of television programs, and that a big percentage of this, and boy, talk about mislabeling, a big percentage of this, 81.5% to be precise, of all primetime broadcast television network family comedies, and you can't see my air quotes here as I'm I'm doing the family comedies, but they, they depict them, they advertise them, they market them as for the family, and yet so much of the instances of adults using explicit dialogue in front of children is taking place in that very environment. Wow. That's exactly right. And what's even more concerning beyond the fact that they're labeling these as family comedies is the fact that they are also marketing them as um, as uh, PG-rated shows. As, and PG is really the least restrictive age-based rating that you're going to encounter on, on television. You know, there is PBG, but hardly anything that's not a you know, Saturday morning cartoon gets that rating. So the preponderance of shows that we're talking about are rated as appropriate for young viewers, and they're being marketed as such. And I've got to believe, given the fact that these numbers are so high, and in all fairness, this study goes across the board. It looks at major television networks, uh, Fox, NBC, ABC, CBS, um, even the, even as you know, Disney promotes their family channel. That the vast majority of this sexualist, sexualized content. Uh, dialogue and so forth that's taking place in programs that they have specifically labeled and marketed for children. That yeah, exactly right, exactly right. And uh, you know, quite often they're involving, as as we discussed, they're involving child actors. And I'm not talking necessarily even about teenage child actors or adult actors pretending to be teenagers, which you sometimes encounter on television. But very young children, for example, you look at a show like The Mick, which is 
mercifully been canceled by Fox, um, but it did um, come up during our study period, and there are plenty of shows like it still on television. Um, but the show The Mix featured uh, a very young boy, maybe seven or eight years old, um, and he's in scenes and situations where adults are talking about sexual content or, or sexual situations in fairly graphic language and fairly explicit terms. Um, and doing this right in front of this young young boy. Um, so, you know, in a professional environment, that would be inappropriate. But sometimes, somehow it gets a pass because it's on television. And the fact that they're also putting that out there for America's children to consume as entertainment is, is very disturbing. And again, not accidental. This is very much on purpose. This is targeted promotion of these themes. They know certainly that kids will get a reaction. They also know at the end of the day that that a lot of the titillating dialogue tends to drive ratings. And so there there is a financial motivation at play here by these networks, and they are using your child or your family as a pawn in order to gain the ratings and the intentional depiction of sex and the influence uh, that you see um, depicted on television is sort of normalizing this sort of behavior, I, I, I suspect is a big part of the problem here, that, that suddenly children are getting the message that this must be okay, and even some adults that maybe don't know how to toe the line or don't really perhaps fully understand what's going on here because the TV set kind of tends to be the babysitter that the kids are plucked down in front of when mom and dad are busy, don't fully understand the kind of impact that it's having on their children. We want to talk more about just that very issue. Melissa Henson is with us today. She is a noted expert on this topic, and we are talking today about the new report released by the Parents Television Council that spotlights, um, quite frankly, an area of grave concern, and that is the influence of so-called situation comedies or family comedies in broadcast television and how that even in a day and an age when they say, well, we're going to put a label on it, um, somehow much of the restrictions seem to bypass not just the censors, but most importantly, mom and dad censor at home. What kind of message, what sort of lesson are we teaching our children here? It's not a good one, I'll tell you that. We'll come back to more of our dialogue in just a moment. Right now here at 515, let's have some dialogue with Michael Bennett. He's got a look at your ride home on this Thursday. Michael, what's up? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. As recent as 2010, and it's perhaps been updated even since then, but in 2010, the American Psychological Association released a study that addressed particularly the issue of sexualization of girls as a, quote, serious societal problem. And ironically, just watching the news over the last week or so has demonstrated, no matter how you come down to the topic, it has demonstrated just how problematic and how widespread this is, a serious societal problem. And unfortunately, we continue to stoke the flame here by looking the other way when it comes to the influence of the media and television. I suppose, Melissa Henson, it's difficult. Parents feel perhaps overwhelmed. There was a day and an age when you just had the police television, and now it's uh, TV, it's uh, Netflix, it's 
uh, Amazon Prime. It's what they watch on the Internet. It's things that they consume at a friend's home. I mean, the list goes on ad nauseum in terms of the places where they can be influenced by all of this. And I think, sadly, perhaps the, the greatest arena of influence is right at home because mom and dad tend to see this as a cheap babysitter instead of fully realizing exactly what it is their kids are being exposed to and the influence that it's having on them and their psyche. Yeah, I think unfortunately you're right. I mean, you'll see a number of surveys that'll tell you that something like 80% or more of American parents think that um, too much sex on TV is problem uh, is a problem. They're concerned about violence on TV. They're concerned about profanity on TV. And yet more than half of America's children have a TV set in their bedroom. And we also know from surveys that quite often when kids are watching TV alone in their room, they're also watching things that they know mom and dad would not normally approve of, like MTV or, or, or something else that would go against their household screen time rules. So it is a problem, and I think it is also here, too, a disconnect, because we've got um, parents that recognize that there's a problem, but they, they think it's a problem for the kid down the street. Not for my child. My, chi- my child is too smart to be influenced like this, but it's a problem for that kid down the street whose parents are a mess. Um, and, and this is something that I think we need to address personally <laughs> in each of our own homes, um, because it's not just a problem for the kid down the street. It's a problem for every child. And perhaps every child who is exposed to this kind, kind of content is not going to act out. Um, because of what they've seen. Not every child who's exposed to screen violence is going to become violent. Not every child who's exposed to sexual content on TV is going to become sexually active right away. Um, But it does increase the risk that someday they might behave more violently than they otherwise would or that they might engage in sexual behavior at a younger age. Or or even if the behavior behavior is such, uh, Melissa, that they don't act out, doesn't it at the very least in the most uh, quote-unquote innocuous fashion tend to desensitize in a way in which these kids as they grow up may be less disturbed by depictions of over-sexualization or violence, whatever it might be, that they would be exposed to even as they go on to become young adults and and one day even have their own families. I mean, there's got to be an accumulative Uh, effect here. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, one uh, one researcher called television a sexual superpeer. So if we think about the kind of influence that our child's peer group can can, uh, exercise on our child in terms of the choices that they make in life, that is amplified to the 10th power, the 100th power by television, because it ha- television has a way of normalizing sometimes very outside of the norm behaviors. Um, and t- uh, TV writers are well aware of this, and they use that influence very deliberately in order sometimes to push a particular political agenda or particular social causes because they know that TV has a way of normalizing certain kinds of behaviors. They use that to their advantage, but it works to our kids' disadvantage. And the balance of influence here is so far out of whack. I don't know what studies might have been done on this topic. I'm certain that they exist that look at the number of minutes a day that parents Mm -hmm. are engaged with their children. I I don't mean, you know, Johnny, come to the dinner table or, you know, pick up your dishes on the way to the sink. I mean, engaged in real one-on-one direct give and take dialogue and interaction I suppose if we measured the amount of that so-called quality time up against 
the number of hours that they are being influenced, not just at home, but even mobily. I mean, you know, they can be sitting on the bus on their way home and ex- be exposed right. to all of this by watching uh, videos on their cell phone. And suddenly, you're right. Not only is um, television or the media a huge influencer, but boy, it puts a whole new spin on the term super peer, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. And you're right. You know, when I first started working for the CPC, this is over 20 years ago, um, there were studies at that time that indicated that kids spend more time with television than with any other socializing influence outside of family. Um, And that was before the days of the smartphone, before um, everybody had a screen in the palm of their hand. Um, Now screens are so ubiquitous. And kids are spending so much time consuming media outside of the purview of their parents. You know, 20 years ago, if you were watching TV, it was likely to be in the family room. uh, And you were likely to be watching with other members of your family. That's no longer the case for the most part today. Kids are far more likely to be consuming media on their laptops, on their smartphones, on their iPads, outside of the the influence and the purview of their parents or any other... um, uh, you know, mediating factors that, that might mitigate against some of those harmful messages that they might might be exposed to. And therein lies perhaps the huge challenge for pro, for parents today. Uh, there are peers of mine, and I know when I make this remark, it'll make me sound as old as dirt. Maybe I am. <laughs> but there are peers of mine who, in raising their children, made the determination that they the kids would have enough time to be exposed to the world and all of this, so they wanted to make as as pure an environment as they possibly could, as, as wholesome as an environment at home as they possibly could. And so they determined we're going to own one TV set. The TV set will be locked in a closet. We will bring the TV set out when there are educational opportunities, when there are opportunities to sit down and, and watch a discovery program or an important news program that the entire family can benefit from. But other than that, if the kids want diversion at night, they can find that either through the radio or through reading and other methodologies, but not through television. Well, unfortunately, today, as you allude to, you can't control it that way. I mean, lock the TV set up in one room. Well, there's 10 others in the house, or if you don't have 10 others, the neighbor down the street does, and the kid carries a TV set in a miniature form in his back pocket every day. Right, right. In fact, you know, earlier this year, we, we were talking about a Netflix original series uh, called 13 Reasons Why, and we were warning parents about this series, and it was rated for mature audiences only. But in conversations I've had with teenagers, the vast majority of teenagers that I, I've spoken to did not see the, that show at home on their television. They watched it at school on a friend's cell phone. Um, so it is really, really hard now for parents to protect their kids from these kinds of harmful, harmful media messages. So who's going to? I mean, at the end of the day, Melissa, if if clearly the networks have no interest because this is all about money, if the FCC is not holding anyone's feet to the fire for content, if parents find it just absolutely overwhelming based on the advancement of technology to be able to control this, what do we do? Look at a study like this and say, tisk tisk, what a shame it is, and good luck to future generations because it's all on its way in, in, a, in a handbasket, or are there practical things that we can be doing to change the tide, the direction of this, to stem the tide? Yeah, there absolutely are practical things that we can be doing. Um, one is that, um, you know, many, many people will advise having a, um, a locker of sorts at home. When your kid gets home, you know, when I was a kid, my parents would send me to school with a quarter every day in case I had to make an emergency phone call. 
you can't do that anymore. Nobody has public cell, uh, public phones anymore. So a lot of kids carry cell phones so that they can reach their parents in, in case of an emergency. But a lot of families will have a locker of sorts uh, where when the kids come home at the end of the day, the cell phone goes in the locker and they're not allowed to use it until they, they leave for school the next day. There are also a lot of filters that you can put in place, not only on individual devices, but also on your, your home's Wi-Fi network. Um, to prohibit certain kinds of content from um, being downloaded or streamed into your home. Um, you can uh, put parental controls in place if you're using streaming video services. Then um, I would strongly advise uh, folks to take advantage of those parental controls. And most importantly, with the broadcast networks, and here I'm going to disagree with something that you said earlier, um, they don't insert this racy dialogue in order to drive up the ratings. In fact, a lot of the shows that have the raciest content also have the lowest ratings. It's far more agenda-driven than it is ratings-driven or money-driven. Um, historically, shows that are more family-friendly tend to be far more successful than shows that have a lot of inappropriate content. So it's not money-driven. Um, and if we can communicate that point to the companies that are underwriting these shows, uh, that, that we don't like this kind of content in the shows that are coming into our homes, um, and, and let the advertisers know that, um, that their brand and their, their company, their hard or, hard earned corporate image is being associated with this kind of content, quite often they will do the right thing and pull off of those shows. And once you have, um, uh, these networks starting to lose advertiser dollars, then, then, then they'll either cancel the show or hopefully it'll put some pressure on them to clean it up or, or offer some more wholesome content as an alternative. Well, certainly one thing we've learned down through the years, and that is money talks. And if you want to get their influence and get their intention, then that's, that's a good way to do it, and that is to hit them where uh, the money belt lies. We appreciate, Melissa, you taking the time to uh, uh, share this with us. Is the actual survey that we've referred to today, the new study available online, if parents want to go a little bit deeper on this topic? Yes, absolutely. You can find it at parentstv.org. All right, excellent. ParentsTV.org. That's ParentsTV.org. And, you know, we've done interviews with folks from Parents TV uh, Council for many, many years, as I alluded to earlier, and they are one of the few groups that's helping parents get better educated and, most importantly, better equipped to address these issues. Our thanks to Melissa Henson. Again, information available on this particular study by going to ParentsTV.org. 5.30. Let's get a look at traffic, shall we? We do that right now with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. 5.34, we continue on the Thursday edition of Lifeline. Romans 8.1 reminds us, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Certainly encouraging words, but oftentimes difficult to apply, difficult to completely comprehend and to grasp when you are struggling with issues of embarrassment, maybe more put shame. There's a lot of confusion on this topic. Sometimes people hear shame and they think of condemnation and then they confuse conviction with condemnation. But where really does shame come from? What is the source of shame? Certainly it can be based on things that you have thought of or you have done. There's also a growing list of people that struggle with shame, not based on their own actions, but by actions of others that have brought shame 
to them, shame to their families. Certainly, that is the tale of our next guest. Denise Pass is a well-known speaker, author, Christian recording artist, and um, I should also mention author, um, music, music writer, worship leader. Denise has written a new book called Shame Off You, From Hiding to Healing. Denise, great to have you on the program. Well, thank you so much, Craig. It's my delight to be here. This is a heavy subject, and I guess mm-hmm. many might wonder, wow, given your involvement in ministry, how well-known your name is, and I'll mention for listeners that you are the, the author of a number of award-winning songs, including You Are Worthy, Layers, and Rain in Me. And um, this is a topic that you probably could have very well just said, need to get this behind me, forget about this, stuff it down, bury it, and move on with my life. And yet you've decided to go public. Why? You know, uh, when it first all happened, I tried that method of hiding it, and it, it really didn't heal and eradicate the shame in my life. You know, the worst thing you want is to have it be public because your heart is just hurt so much. And you don't really care to have public opinion on things. But I saw my children, and I saw how we had to fight for our healing for years, five years of court. And in that whole process, I realized we deal with shame in the wrong way. We try to cover it up or um, maybe give it a different name. Um, I know for me, I went off the deep end with trying to do a lot of fun things with the kids, you know, to try to be happy again. But this heavy blanket of shame just covered us, and we just had to deal with it biblically. And to me, part of that is, if God heals you and you don't share that with others because you're ashamed, then you really weren't healed. (laughs) There must have been, though, for you a a precautionary tale here um, in an effort to try and, as best you could, um, insulate your children from more embarrassment. And I don't want to get into too many details here yeah. because folks are better off picking up a copy of the book. We'll just suffice it to say that there was abuse that took house took place in your household um, at the hands of your now ex-husband that yeah. was compelling to the point where it needed to be addressed um, in a, a very real and unfortunately open fashion. Um, mm-hmm. As that transpired, there had to have been times where, in spite of the embarrassment and the shame, that you must have worked real hard saying, you know, I, I, we can't subject the kids to any more of this. So isn't there also a tendency to try and and short-circuit um, dealing with shame, uh, a failure to maybe break that cycle of shame because of fear of more shame and just wanting it to be over? Yes. But, you know, it was a moment for me when I was speaking at a conference um, a little over a year ago, and my daughters were ministering with me. They will often go and sing uh, and worship with me. And I was avoiding the elephant in the room. You know, I was sharing about Hope Reinvented, uh, my first book uh, written with 31 Days to Hope Reinvented. But I didn't say what it was that happened in our family. And one of my daughters came to me. And she just held my hands, and she said, Mom, it's okay. You can say the words. You need to say the words. We have to help other people, because we have experienced healing. We have experienced God's grace in the most horrific thing we never, ever would imagine happening in our life. And so for my daughter to say that to me, 
you know, I realized, okay, it's time that we need to minister together in this. And so God has been, he's been our refuge, and the Word of God has been what has restored us. And for people to see that, yes, God can restore us from something so horrific as sexual abuse in our own home, a Christian home. You know, we home-educated, we did all the right things, quote-unquote, you know, no one ever really does, but... And then to have something like this happen was extremely shameful and devastating. But, you know, if we really believe that our God is a healer and He's able to heal us, then we don't hide testimonies that can help other people. In the early days for you, Denise, following this revelation, and I know that it was a long time in coming, and you had suspected there was something to foul, and really had to press the issue to get any answers, but but in the early days when this uh, came to your knowledge, um, there, there must have been a sense of just complete, total, utter hopelessness about the situation. Oh, I mean, just completely shattered. I mean, I didn't know anything about the legal system and all the investigations, and my heart was broken for my children, and as things unfolded, it was like a peeling onion, more revelations, more things, and completely just at this place of, how in the world did this happen? You know, and I actually, you know, the book opens up with a, a moment for me at a new church we went to when they did a poster board testimony, and a person walked across the stage uh, with a sign that said, Sexual Abuse Victim, and turned it around and said, Healed. And I just, I couldn't believe that we could be healed. I was struggling with that. So for sure, I had those moments of crying out. I didn't even feel like I could cry out enough, because I just didn't know how we would ever recover from this. And people would tell me, oh, this is going to be the rest of your life, you know. And as a Christian who loves God so much, and I I minister in His name, and I tell people God is a healer, I was confronted with something that I, I... certainly came to a point of, Lord, how? How can we ever recover from this? And for me, it was just different moments where, you know, I, I desperately didn't want my children to testify in court. I tried to protect them from all of that and how sometimes you can do all you can, but, you know, other pieces are moving and you've got to walk through it with the grace of God. And um, we were devastated, but in all of it, you know, we saw that our God was enough. We did find our hope. I think that's really where 31 Days to Hope Reinvented came from, was I was searching for hope, because my hope was in the wrong things before. It was a perfect life. It was, hey, if I'm a strong Christian, I'm going to have this blessed life. And I realized it is a blessed life, because we have a Savior who is with us. We don't go through the perfect life of, you know, no pain, but we have one who enables us in the midst of it. There had to have been moments when there was a sense in the middle of that hopelessness that it was hope that the hopeless that there was just you could possibly or impossibly see any way out of this uh, you know to 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 find healing uh, particularly for your daughter and and to 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 reach that point where there was a sense of at least quasi feeling normal again and I have to wonder if maybe part of the plot here by the enemy is to encourage. Silence. You talk about in the book how shame silences, and that 
even if we have been able to, through the grace of God, work our way through the challenges, address it, see God begin to to do miracles in our lives and bring about restoration and healing, and yet the circumstances that created this mess in the first place remain so shame-filled that we're afraid to go public. And as a result, not only do we not be able to share the witness, share the story, but others, too, are then deprived of the ability to hear somebody else say, hey, I was there, too. Right now, you feel like there is no hope. I'm here as a witness to tell you there is hope. And I have to wonder how much of this is simply an effort of the enemy to try and sort of um, short-circuit the opportunity for healing for others. Yes, and I think that shame is such a strong focus on self, right? It's what are other people thinking about me? And that's what condemnation, you opened uh, this up with talking about condemnation. It accuses our soul. It tries to define us. Oh, we're that family. We were never going to have divorce. You know, all these things I dreaded, dreaded ever happening. But conviction is different. It's based on relationship. And so when shame is throwing all sorts of accusations. Some of them fit, some of them don't. You know, this was shame in our lives brought upon us, right? But my response to that shame can also bring shame into my life. Am I going to choose the route of bitterness and anger, or am I going to realize in that moment, it's just not about me. It's about God getting glory. I remember that moment in court, just saying, God, why? Why do we have to go through this shameful experience? And I just saw Christ you know, uh, for the joy set before him, enduring the cross with joy. And I thought as I stood there in the courtroom, Lord, can I do this with joy? Can I glorify you? Can all I care about be your glory and not just my shame? Because when we're so focused on self, we lose perspective. And it began that he just changed me. And I realized I was on this perpetual cycle of shame, of condemnation, comparing with others, and trying to get off of it, and I couldn't. Until I went before God with what I have in the book, a biblical filter of truth, humility, and grace. Could I examine that shame instead of being put off by it and trying to silence it? Could I go ahead and look at it square in the eye and know who I am in Christ and know that my identity is in Christ alone, not in the shame? It didn't matter what anyone said. Did our pain matter to our Savior? Yes. Was it real? Was it raw? Did it bring us to excruciating points? Yes. But we also learned more of our Savior, and I did find joy, even in the midst of it, because I had one who had walked that road before me. And you know, the funny thing is, he chose that road. He chose to come and bear our sins in shame. He didn't have to do that. He's God. And it's because, I love that verse there, Hebrews 12, 1-2, it says that he did not regard shame, and that's the NLP translation. Uh, NIV says, scoring, it's shame. But see, I, we have a choice, and a lot of times people feel like they can't rise above shame because it's so powerful, and it's man's opinion, and it's all this comparison. But we can rise above it if we're willing to look at it through God's Word. You know, Proverbs 11, 2 says, with pride comes shame, but with humility comes wisdom. And I realized it was prideful how I was dealing with shame in my life. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed that we had this happen in our family. And all I cared about was my children and I. Some of that's good, you know, you know protecting my kids and walking through it. But some of it wasn't good. It was 
so self-focused. And I'm not trying to say that there shouldn't be compassion. There should be. But if we will look at God's Word and say, Lord, how do you want me to think about this? Will you help me to forgive? Will you help me to think about you and what you suffered willingly? We're going to take a time out. I want to come back to more of our visit. Christian recording artist Denise Pass is with us today. Her book is called Shame Off You, From Hiding to Healing. The new book, by the way, has been released by Abington Press, and you'll find it at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as order it directly through Denise's website at denisepass.com. That's denisepass.com. A timeout, an update on traffic. Michael Bennett, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Denise Pass is with us today. The book is called Shame Off You, newly published by Abington and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Denise's website, simply at denisepass.com. Denise, it seems as if your experience in going through all of this led you to the conclusion that Hiding shame does not heal it. Yes, definitely. And I think it just became very aware to me. You know, the book isn't all uh, heavy. I want to say that I really try to cover many areas of shame. And I even have a scriptural reference guide in the back because shame surprises us. You know, we do try to hide it because we, we want to get rid of it. It's this feeling that we're being accused. It's almost like propaganda, if you will, in the culture around us. But we have to recognize what is true and what isn't. And, uh, you know, even things like um, embarrassment over the vehicle you drive or over finances you don't have as much as someone else does. Or I even have some funny stories about myself, uh, embarrassing stories, actually, because God has set me free. And it doesn't mean that it's not so hard, that I don't still face shame, but now I know how to face it. And it isn't by covering it up or with pride, um, all the different obstacles that prevent us from getting rid of shame. It's by facing it biblically. Trying to process all of this as an adult is one thing. Mm. Processing this as a child, though, um, considering the potentiality of the kind of scarring that take that can take place, uh, the kind of turning on God, and you know, we we as parents try to, from a very tender early age, um, help our children undersee the the love of God, the character of God, the compassion of God, and and a lot of that, of course, is borne out through the words that we say and the way we live out our life. And then a child has an experience that suddenly for them suggests that mommy and daddy were lying here, that God isn't all that protective, isn't all that kind, isn't all that loving, because look what happened. How did you address this topic in particular with your children? Well, I praise the Lord for His Word, because I will tell you, those first, say, five, even five to ten years, I mean, this is not easy. This is just because I wrote a book and was obedient to do that, and it was not an easy decision, doesn't mean that we didn't suffer, you know, that we didn't have to hunt for our healing. But really, it came down to what is this character of God? Is he to blame when life is hard or when man makes sinful choices? It really comes to that question that everyone always brings up when hard times happen. Is God good? 
if I really believe that by studying His Word, which we did, and we did the Bible reading plan together, and we cried out to God, and we had those times of, I don't understand, and definitely had those times where my kids, it was a rough, rough season for us. And confusion, you know, here's someone who claimed to be a Christian. How is a Christian capable of all those tough questions we asked? And for us, we found answers in the Word of God. Is it perfect answers all the time? Do we just go around saying, um, well, God is good, amen? No, we found that God was good because He proved Himself in His Word and in His character through walking us through the most horrific things of all. And, you know, even in the midst, um, I, don't, I don't put everything in the book that we went through, but some of the crazy things that we went through, I remember just saying to my kids, too, really, God, can we handle any more? And well-meaning Christians would say to us, God won't give you more than you can handle. <laughs> and, you know, oh, you must be really strong to be going through this. You know, I really came to detest um, counsel like this, <laughs> because I thought, you don't understand. This is way beyond what I could handle. And for me, the comfort was, um, I think it's in Second Corinthians 1, um, 8 through 11, where Paul is saying, we don't want you to be deceived about the troubles we went through in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, that we even despaired of life itself. But this happened that we would not depend on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so even in, you know, just I was arrested a couple times during the whole process. There was a, a paperwork error. We had robberies in our neighborhood. We were under great pressure. And as a single mom suddenly and still trying to home educate, sure, we had those questions of, God, why? But, you know, for me, there was one moment where I said, Lord, I don't understand. Why are we suffering for someone else's sin? I actually asked that question. And the Lord just whispered back to my heart, I wasn't angry when I bore your sin. Suddenly I realized you really can't do pity parties well with the Lord who <laughs> he chose suffering. And, and not that it was a light thing we went through. In fact, um, I can tell you there were times where I wondered if I would make it out. And I had people coming up to me saying, I'm just amazed you don't drink. You don't turn to like a wicked lifestyle with all you're going through. Kind of reminds me of Job, right? Mm -hmm. They were saying, curse God and die. Well... You know, it's not God who caused this. And we forgive. I forgive my ex-husband. I pray that God heals him completely, that, um, you know, he can find peace. But, you know, we don't live under condemnation. We don't live in the shadow of that shame anymore because we have a living God who is our Redeemer. And if you're going to escape that victim mentality, which is so easy to go into. Uh, you know, the, the shame can lead to those wonderful little pity parties where it's all about me and all the suffering that I'm going through and nobody understands this but me. And, and yet, in order to, to sort of extract yourself from that vicious cycle, it's not only a, a mindset, but as I think you suggest throughout the book, it really is a heart set, isn't it? Mm. Yes, I talk about two different cycles of shame, you know, and there's a cycle of redemption, is what I call it, the shame off you cycle. And it is that moment of revelation. So it's revelation if it's redeeming, it's condemnation 
if it is a shame cycle. And, and to be able to look at that as a kindness, a kindness that God would reveal things to us that we do wrong, because there's shame that we got to own sometimes, right? And then there's shame we don't, but we still can have that revelation and still bring it to God. And so it is so liberating. And, and I've, I've said this uh, to some other people as well, but, you know, when the enemy comes and he accuses us, because that is what he is good at, and he says, you're not enough. And we have such fear of that, right? We want to validate ourselves. We want to think we're okay. And we live in fear of someone dare saying that in some way we're not enough. Turn it around as a profession. I'm not enough. And it's okay. Because my Savior is my sufficiency. And I think as Christians, a lot of people know that terminology, but they don't live it. You see, we keep trying to earn our righteousness, or we try to paint things up to make ourselves look good, but to freely admit, yeah, I have shame apart from Christ, but that's not what God sees when he looks at me. And I don't have to be a victim anymore, because I'm a victor in Christ, because of what he did on that cross. Again, the book is called Shame Off You, From Hiding to Healing, newly published by Abington, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Denise's website, denisepass.com. That's denisepass.com. Denise, I know this is hard, reliving some of this and sharing this again in another public venue, but we appreciate so much you taking time to share not only part of your story, but a big part of the healing process here to provide hope and encouragement to others. Our thanks again to Christian recording artist Denise Pass. Shame Off You. Great book. Six o'clock from KFAX. We're going to teach you a look here at traffic right now. And to get us caught up, Michael Bennett, what's going on out there? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.